Back Crusaders this is the Dirt Crusade podcast, and I'm your host Ian. And today with me is Courtney. Today we're going to be talking about some games, movies, and TV shows. We're going to be talking about Hi-Fi Rush, uh, the movie You People, and The Last of Us episode three. We'll recap some episode two stuff, but episode three was a huge episode, so we'll be talking about that uh, today as well. Um, so uh, let's jump right into it. First thing we'll talk about is Hi-Fi Rush. This game was dropped in kind of. They, call it shadow drop jerry because basically it was announced and then it was released right after announcement um this was a game that people were thinking was hibiki and it was leaked that hibiki was supposed to be like a jet set radio game which this game definitely has influences of but all the leaks about it were completely wrong um hibiki was is just it's a liquor it's a Japanese whiskey brand. That's all. That's all it is. <laughs> it's weird that the character has like Hibiki written on a suspender on one of, on his outfit, but it's well, nothing huge. Well, that's just kind of a nod to their probably what their shadow name was. So yeah, I thought I like name. yeah. So I like that aspect, kind of dropping that little Easter egg. <clears throat> but um, Hi-Fi Rush is done in a very cartoonish style. A lot of people have mentioned like Saturday morning cartoon, uh, very reminiscent of like Agents of Mayhem or whatnot. Um, but it's a rhythm game, but I would say unlike other rhythm games, like especially if you read our review on it, um, it's a rhythm game where like if you're off beat, it's not going to hinder your ability to play the game. Thank so, God. <laughs> so basically, yeah, you can, if you're on beat, you do more damage, you get better ratings, you get better score, but you can still defeat enemies and play through this game being off beat where I felt like other games like, uh, Hellsinger, like as mentioned in the review, mm-hmm. like if you're off beat, you're not doing damage or you're not having any effect and it gets frustrating and you have to feel like you have to stay on beat, which on that game is very hard because it's death metal. So like, no, there's double bass pedals and shit going on. It's hard to keep, keep with the beat on that. Yeah. You have to have thumbs of freaking light speed to do that game. <clears throat> it's hard, but Hi-Fi Rush, like you said, Anyone can really jump in and you have rhythm. Yeah. You're going to get more points and you're going to get, uh, to your special moves faster, but anyone can really play this and have fun. Yeah. I'd say the, another thing is like, this game also gives you the option because with a lot of rhythm games, the player is obstructed by the actions you have to take or by keeping up with the rhythm. So they don't really get to pay attention to the environment. Where this has the option to turn on a rhythm meter at the bottom of the screen so you can see it. And there are some like quick time rhythm events that do encompass the whole screen. But for the most part, you can turn off the rhythm counter. And the quick time events aren't that intrusive because they're kind of like in cutscenes. Um, but you basically can actually enjoy the game because how the plot goes is that the whole world moves to this rhythm. So you see the trees, the abstract ob- objects. Uh, gears they're moving at, to the rhythm of the music that's playing and they did a really good job of, like even just creating their own custom music for the game is done all really well plus they did get some licensed music from like nine inch nails reo black uh, keys black keys um a north wales band called the for the joy formidable um which we'll br- talk a little more about them later because <laughs> like they have literally the best song in the game and it's not even the final battle well, it's getting up to the final battle, so yeah. it's prepping you up, it's getting you hyped, 
and it's like a real and in that level it's called the needle drop and that is a perfect name for that level is needle drop yeah it's done really really well um other thing is like it's not just like the music and the rhythm and, and the art style like the characters are done really well the game is like super polished that's one of the reasons why in the review i had put that hey one of the biggest things on this game is it's polished. It's not buggy. It's not. There's not. We're not going into a bunch of broken aspects or broken things in the game. I think I ran into one broken bug where I talked to a character in the hideout and the game froze. But rebooting it, restarting exactly where it was, there was no lost progress or anything like that. Um, but there's nothing in the game that's broken that suddenly you can't progress because here's a bug that needs a, pa- a day one patch for it or something. Um, the fact that it was not announced, it just like hey. Uh, the Microsoft developer director was like, hey, here's the new game from Bethesda and from the creators of uh, Evil Within. It's a rhythm game. It's out today. Go play it. Everyone went and played on Game Pass, and it's been taken uh, the world by storm by just word of mouth. Um, I th- think like uh, another great aspect is all the characters. Like You play as the character Chai, who is... A kid who I don't know if he broke his arm, or some people say like he has a disabled arm, but basically his arm is in a sl- in a sling in the very beginning of the game, and he signs up to get a robotic arm for the Project Armstrong, which gives him a robotic arm, but then gives him this by mistake this ability to feel the beat of the world around him, and then move move to the beat, um, to for his like guitar smashing powers. So basically, he has a wand that looks like a guitar when it grabs all the magnetic junk around it and he smashes shit with it which is very familiar with the uh, fully coolie because like oh you get strong fully coolie vibes with this game and i love it yeah even though it's like there's no like real direct hey here's a fully coolie wink and nod point it's very much there's our scenes where it's like oh he's running up with the guitar behind him that's that's straight from fully coolie um but it's it also feels very natural for th- for this as well. Where like there's other references, like a JoJo reference and some other anime references in there that are very much like a wink wink. Get this reference. The fully coolie stuff is just so embedded in there that like either you know it or you don't. And if you don't, it's, you're still gonna enjoy it. You're not mm-hmm. gonna feel like you're missing something. Um, but like you play this character Chai, and then like they did a good naming convention for everything where they're all just flavors because like there's Chai the main character. The main, f- main female protagonist is Peppermint, who helps him out. Uh, Cinnamon is uh, another robot character. He's really cool because, like, his as he's a psychological analytic robot, so he basically just tells everybody what, what they're feeling or, or everything about them, but he has to draw his expressions on his face as he talks. So he's constantly <laughs> with a marker drawing stuff on his face so you get what he's trying to convey. Uh, Macaron, who's a scientist who's, you know, the big burly guy who doesn't want to hurt anything but is super strong. Um, and then you have 808, who is this black cat robot that Peppermint created that so basically cute. is your other visual counter, which is like just a little cat head robot ball by your head, by the character's head that flashes to the beat as well. That's always there to kind of help you stay on beat. But once you get into like moving to the music and like bobbing your head to it, like you'll be able to play this game really, really easily. Mm-hmm. I'd say the only hard part on it is the countering system, which has to be done on a beat. But after a while, you'll get that down enough too, because... There are fights where you can get around it, um, but the mechanic is that certain certain like mini boss characters will go into a state where they force you to do a counter attack uh, sequence. If you nail a counter attack sequence, you can kill them in one blow, which is way better for the score. But if you're not good at it, you can also avoid it by jumping over the 
um, effect that they do when they're going to do uh, do that type of attack. And if you dodge it twice, they'll go back to a normal state, and then you can just continue beating the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the biggest thing here is um, I feel like the music, because, yes, it is a rhythm game. Most rhythm games have good music, but, like, one of the things that a lot of game developers aren't doing anymore is because it, it's costly is licensed music or hiring a composer to write music for their game or yep. making music, like, not as impactful. I would even say Breath of the Wild is a little bit guilty of this because the audio for the Zelda theme that plays softly in the background is so low that sometimes you can't hear it. And it's only at certain points that it really picks up. Where if that played a little bit louder, a little bit more... Uh, a little bit... A little bit more f- impactful throughout the exploring of Breath of the Wild, it would feel like it had more music in it. Um, a good example of a game that's like this that lacks that is Agents of Mayhem. It has, yeah, Agents of Mayhem's animation is not up to the snuff of High Five Rush. High Five Rush has really, really good polished animation. Agents of Mayhem is just underneath that because you can see where like, they took shortcuts in animation, mm-hmm. especially in their cutscenes and stuff. But Agents of Mayhem has no music in it. So it feels like... It feels like a dead world. Yeah, nothing's alive. Yeah. Well, also, since this is a rhythm game, music is very important in this uh, world and to the player as well to keep with the beat and also keep you engaged. And I think with this being a shorter game, uh, you beat it in, what, under eight hours? Six hours? Probably. It's a very, very short so having that licensed music, so you're not going to have uh, 20 different bands or 20 different songs. You have about six or seven licensed music, which helps keep the cost down. But having your own composed music to fill in those gaps, uh, I think, helped a lot, too. Yeah, honestly, a lot of the music that plays, like every time the new track plays, they play like a music video header on there. Like, here's the a band, here's the song, here's who produced it, and like who owns it. So like all the licensing music is usually owned by like Atlantic records. Cause like nine inch nails, um, uh, like you said, black keys and all that, that has that, uh, moniker on there. I think golden pyramid is another, uh, group that owns a lot of the, so- uh, some of the licensed music, but a lot of like just the n- normal background music. And even when you play on streamer mode where they cut out all of the licensed music and they replace all that with their own, all that music is still really good. It's done very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I will and it keeps the theme, too, of whatever level you're pay- playing. Yeah, because each level has, like, a different type of, like, indie rock music theme for it. Um, it's still all rock music. It's not going to go, like, from rock to folk to country to rap or something. It's all definitely alternative indie rock music throughout the entire game. But it all fits very well. i say the closest thing they get offbeat with is... Um, the wolf fight where they play Beethoven's Fifth, which is more like a EMD uh, or electronic music mix. But the beat is still the yeah. same. The beat still works uh, works with it. Uh, and the song's still good. It's just that's the only one that's like, this is more like... It takes you out a closer little Closer to techno than it is to uh, indie rock. Yeah. Um, but like you said, like the second to last level called the Needle Drop is where the whole team gets together finally. Because um, as you play the game, you can call them in for like combos or for the little moves but you basically everybody the story is everybody's at the base and they wait to get teleported in needle drop is that they're all together and they're all going to work together to finally beat the final boss or get to the final boss and that's where the whirling by uh the joy formidable starts playing and it's just a good song that goes to a crescendo of just like crazy loud guitar indie rock 
music. Like I watched them do a live performance in Seattle back in 2011 of the song. And that song just gets louder and louder and louder. It keeps going, going, going to the point where like the whole band is like on the floor, hitting all their mixers, putting their guitar up against the uh, amplifier for feedback loops, just making <laughs> random noise while the drummer is still just having the workout of his life. And it still sounds great all the way through until they finally like, just turn everything off at the end. And it works really well with this crescendo of this group coming together to fight the bad guy and get you to where you need to go to this huge robot fight, which is fucking awesome. Then uh, into the boss fight, which isn't like bad by any means. It's just, it's not as, it's not momentum building as that is yeah. where you still get to play, fight the boss against a kick-ass nine inch nail song. Uh, and defeat him, save the day. And then the game has a lot of replayability because after you beat the game, it's not just a new game plus with it. It's, hey, go back and in certain specific levels, which I think there's only like two or three levels that don't have this in there, where you need to find a secret door that will open up for another extra challenge, which there might be a little bit extra more story there. I don't know yet because I haven't finished all of them, but it's like you replay the level and for you know better score ratings uh, throughout all the difficulties mm-hmm. and to find these secret doors to continue deactivating the spectra thing that was that was story related um but it's just a fun game that you just jump into and play so i said in our review gave it a 10 out of 10 because it's something that anybody can pick up and play nobody's gonna like pick this up and be like frustrated i can't play it um so definitely recommend it it's on game pass or if uh, you don't have game pass um 30 is what this game costs uh for like, well worth the 30 bucks for, like they think the basic version i think it might be 40 dollars for a deluxe version that gives you some costume options but you can purchase costume options at the end game anyway uh, with in-game currency. Not You're not having to do any microtransactions or anything. Um, but definitely a great drop from Microsoft and from Bethesda. I wish more AAA titles, though, would follow the suit where instead of doing months and months of marketing and spending tons of money on marketing that could be complete bullshit from what the game is <laughs> or be a huge waste of money that takes away profits, just announce your game. And then release it and let people play it and decide for themselves. Yeah. Because um, when you have a game coming up and it's hype type up and then reviewers don't get a copy early, reviewers always complain about that. And they say, hey, this game may be crap because when they don't let us review it or they put an embargo so we can't talk about it until the day it releases, it means there's something not right with the game. And then usually those games have been lackluster or they've had huge problems like Cyberpunk. Huge, huge bugs yeah. and unplayable at sections. It's- it's nice to finally have a game where it's relatively bug-free. You could play start to finish. You only ran into that one, but you didn't lose any progress. So it's a refreshing game, to say the least. Yeah, and it's and when you shut drop, you don't. there's no expectation that you have to give reviewers copies. You can just let the public play it and word of mouth carry it, which has worked very well for Hi-Fi Rush. It's super, super popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are comparing it to the PlayStation game. I uh, forgot. Oh, the one that came out around the same time. Yeah, um, I forget what it was called. Um, if it's not, it's not forgot Rumble or something. But basically, that game had a lot of marketing, and it's very lackluster. Nobody likes it. This game had no marketing. Everybody loves it. And it's just more profit for them because they don't have to pay for, for some huge marketing bill. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, Hi-Fi Rush... It's on Xbox, it's on PC, go get it, play it, enjoy it, it's a great game. Um, I know uh, the band, uh, the Joy Formidable, has gotten a ton of new fans looking at the, their own video for that song, The Whirling. Um, 
all the top comments right now are all of people from, that have come from Hi-Fi Rush saying, yeah, I played Hi-Fi Rush and came here, and like, man, this, the song's awesome. So they're yep. about to get a huge injection of fandom for a small indie band that has done some touring, but like, you know, they're they're not Nine Inch Nails, obviously, but right. they're a decent indie band making it on their own. Alright, uh, so our next thing, uh, movies. Uh, we watched a movie this week uh, that we thought was going to be, be funny, but it ended up not being all that funny. It ended up being kind of bad, which was uh, You People. Apparently, this was released in theaters for a short run. Um, it's I don't know why it was. It should have just stayed uh, well, in a Netflix film. Yeah, it's a Netflix film, and um, I don't know if it's considered Netflix original, but it was put in theaters for a short time, probably because they wanted Netflix is doing it so they can get movies considered for Oscars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Not that this would ever be considered for any Oscar. No. It's not good. Um, but what was surprised, what didn't surprise me that it was directed by uh, Kenya Barris and written by Kenya Barris and Jonah Hill, um, which makes total sense because Kenya Barris is the guy who's behind uh, TV shows like Blackish, Black AF, Mixish, and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. So all the writing for the Black Family stuff makes sense now that he's the guy who wrote it. And not to say his stuff is terrible, like he can't write funny stuff, but it's like over the top and then. I feel like his characters never get kind of told, uh, put in their place, which is where this where this movie fails at. Where the people who you're waiting to get told in their place, yes, it happens for the white people, but it doesn't happen for the black people. Yeah, which is like no, both people, both sides of their families were assholes. Yeah, both sides were wrong in this approach. Yeah. So basically, we thought this movie was going to be like, uh, I guess she's coming to dinner, but more on the comedy side with Eddie Murphy in it. Uh, and you know, I'm obviously going to be kind of the re- reverse, even though who gets who's coming to dinner shows racism on both black folks and white folks in the original Sydney Poirier movie. So go watch, look who's coming to dinner, yeah. please. Cause but, that is a great old film and it's still relevant to stay. I believe. Yeah. It's still really relevant. still really good. Uh, where this, I was advertised as kind of a comedy and it was supposed to be Jonah Hill wanting to ask, uh, wanting to marry his, his black girlfriend and her parents kind of being, like, obviously against it. So there would be the obvious trope of, like, oh, it's the black people who are very racist here. But it's like, hey, also the white people are kind of, like, politely but, racist but not realizing it, which they definitely touch on that. The ignorant racism. Yeah, the ignorant racism, yeah. And they definitely touch on that, but it's, like, basically, Jonah Hill's from a very big Jewish family. Uh, he's, like, a financial broker who quits his job to do his podcast with his best friend who's a black uh, chick. Uh, who they just talk about culture and hip-hop music and hip-hop culture because he loves hip-hop music. He grew up listening to it, and that's what he And he, he vibes really with. loves the culture, and he's trying to really get into it by, you know, dressing like hip-hop artists, uh, being a shoe addict. Like, that's his favorite place is that big shoe store with the Jordans and uh, yeah, Yeezys. The thing is, it doesn't come off as, like, him being fake about it and just trying to emulate black culture he definitely comes off as someone genuinely who like he likes hip-hop he likes uh all those things that people would associate with hey you're black and famous so you're gonna like shoes you're gonna like sports and basketball and all this other mm-hmm. stuff um and it pretty much plays out that way for the most part that hey he meets this girl they get in a relationship you know six months past he wants to ask her parents to marry him uh or that he can marry uh, their daughter, they have issues with it because he's uh, white, but they don't flat say you can't marry my daughter because you're white. They say uh, you can try, and like as if Eddie Murphy's gonna do whatever he can to like prevent it from happening. But 
I didn't flat out say no. Yep. Um, so like, of course, like same like expected things happen, right? Like he invites himself on the bachelorette on the bachelor party, which is stupid. He shouldn't. Have, the father bride shouldn't have been there, but he did that to make sure he had a, a horrible time. Finds out that like, you know, being a financial manager, uh, him and his white friends did coke and shit all, all, uh, a ton of times and shit like that, mm-hmm. and acts as if like he he didn't. And then, you know, the parents meet. He has to show up in his militant Muslim outfit like he's uh, a black activist. Um, who then like it's really weird because like he starts saying he starts saying he's a follower I forget the guy's name but he's a the guy's a, a clear anti-Semite and he knows the family's Jewish, so it's like antagonizing the white family for no other reason just to antagonize them to get in that conversation of who suffered more the Jews or the blacks, which is a stupid conversation to have like you can't nobody wins that conversation yeah it's like you're both in a lose lose situation like why even bring it up other than to be like. Oh, look, see, you're not compatible. You can't get married. Better break up. Yeah, and I feel like the downfall of this movie is when the comeuppance comes, yes, the do- the black dart yells at Jonah Well, Hill, she doesn't yell. She, she never raises her voice. But she She's, calls her out. Yeah, she calls her out very eloquently, very well. And which is... But it almost feels unearned because of how ignorant she is about her racism with her where she says oh i'm not a toy but like we never see scenes of her talking to her friends about every time she hangs out with her black daughter-in-law you don't see scenes of them actually like treating her like hey look here's my black daughter-in-law yeah um so and almost for me it feels like yes they are the ignorant racist but you're yelling at her her about stuff that you're assuming she does and you don't know for sure that she's doing mm-hmm. Yes, she's trying to get to know you, and she's doing it the wrong way by researching black people. And then when she finds out that black people have black women wear weaves and and extensions and stuff, she does a bunch of research and starts to talk to you about that. You need that conversation should have been like, "Hey, no, I don't even come to your house and say, hey, you're Jewish. Tell me about what life being a Jew is like.' Mm-hmm. It should have been, "Hey, you've been talking to me about everything about black culture that you've been that you've been researching. That's not how you treat people. You just treat me like a normal person. How was my day? Find out what I like and what I do. Don't just assume." Because these are things of culture that you need to jump. That's what we need that to talk I'm about. That I'm automatically a part of. Yeah. Or that I want to talk about those things. Yeah. Um, but like you said, her her speech was very elegant. And then like, I think Jonah Hill standing up to Eddie Murphy was done okay. But it was also done kind of like she was like the most he does is indirectly say that his, he's an asshole and then walks away from it. But, yeah. Jonah Hill never grows a spine in this film at all. The only time he shows a rep remnants of a spinal column is when he says oh you're an asshole to Eddie Murphy and just walks away and yeah. that's it the rest of the time he's just like this flaccid penis on screen just <laughs> pretty much because the fact because the other thing is like what's happening throughout this whole thing is that he's very nervous very anxious can't like really stamp to his boss or to authority figures and stuff like that to the point like He's like everybody who says, oh, yeah, I told that guy to fuck off. And then in reality, no, he didn't. But he does that to his wife. He tells her, like, when he quit his job during podcast, like, I told him, fuck you, I shoved this job. And You mean girlfriend. Or girlfriend, yeah. And she's like, oh, did you say that? He's like, oh, yeah, I totally did. It's like, why are you lying to her? Yeah, it's like. She doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, she knows that you're a limp dick. Just own up and be like, no, but I did say I resigned. Yeah. And I handed in my uh, resignation Like, paper. he literally gave him the letter then ran away. That's how he quit. Not, he didn't really confront his boss at all. Yeah. And the fact that, like, that's such a minor thing, but, like, he constantly, like, tells these little lies, 
but it's never rectified of him being called out on it or that. But like we we have to get the impression like okay, she knows he's full of shit, but whatever, doesn't care. But to us, we're like, stop lying to your to her, dude. You want to marry her, but why are you lying about every little thing? Yeah, like Which, all these like little white lies build up, and eventually, guess what? You're going to have a terrible relationship. Yeah. So maybe you should go to, uh, uh marriage counseling. Uh, what or, they do before marriage, it's like marriage counseling or whatever and like, talk this shit out and then they could also talk out about you know your parental issues and how your parents are like kind of fucking us up and get that all aired out but no we don't want to show like real life solutions we want to show bullshit movie solutions yeah, yeah that's the thing because that's what doesn't feel realistic about it because even though i can understand jewish families are very much want to be part of the wedding and Planning and that same with uh, tr- maybe a traditional African American family want to know like hey use our reverend or use our rabbi that type of stuff or pick our venue pick this venue type thing that's definitely a thing that couples can deal have to deal with regardless of families or races or whatnot yeah but what's unrealistic here is that clearly both of them know their families are shitty and their families are fucking things up and they know it's because of the mom on on his side and. Eddie Murphy's character, the dad on her side, and yet they still break up for three months saying, this isn't going to work because of our, our families. I don't know any couple who's ever been, you know, our families hate each, our, our families are terrible. We should just not get married. They usually say, fuck our families, and they run off and get married, and then don't deal yeah. with them. Um, the fact that they broke up for three months, and this is why Jonah Hill's character is so weak is because she wants to break up over this and he does nothing he's just he just goes along with it he's like, like okay if that's what you really want fight. okay he doesn't fight for her at all he doesn't say hey this is stupid we need to talk about this he just and goes they don't with it fight for the relationship at all during those three months they're yeah. just kind of like dupe 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 and it's the parents that like oh we did a bad here get back together oh surprise wedding and it's like not earned it's bullshit it's so yeah stupid. the fact that it took three months for the fa- for the parents to realize yeah, they've been shitty, and then they talk to each other, and then they set up a wedding for them, and they get of a surprise wedding, and then they get married at the end. It's like, okay, that's great. Wedding's paid for all that stuff, and yeah, maybe it's not exactly what they were planning originally. Who knows? But they're back together. It's just it's stupid that that happened. Um, the other part that's kind of in the background is that, like, they put all the racism on the mom's side of being naive and stupid, mm-hmm. um, but they also try to make David Hockney, who look, who's Jonah Hill's dad, act as like is he drunk all the time or is he not because like he just always wants to talk about exhibit and keeps constantly either singing exhibit songs to uh his girlfriend or like talking about exhibit his speech was about exhibit at the rehearsal dinner and then like i sing like okay they're making like the drunk guy that only wants to talk about the one black thing he knows right but then i realized wait jonah hill constantly says like he grew up on hip-hop he loves hip-hop music that's why he likes black culture that's why, and he, like I said, he plays it very genuinely, so he doesn't look like he's a poser about it. I realized, no, what it is is that his dad listened to hip-hop, introduced him to it. He went on, grew up, got moved out of the house on his own life. His dad has nobody else to talk to about hip-hop at all because his Jewish wife is not listening to hip-hop. His, <laughs> pro, his progressive daughter uh, in college is not listening to hip-hop music. Yeah. He finally has another person in the house, in the family that he's like, cool, I can talk about hip-hop with my whole new family that's over here. So he's always talking about Exhibit. Not because he's a racist, drunk dad that only wants to talk about the one black thing he knows. It's like, I can talk about the music I love with people who will probably like it too. 
Yeah, it's which to me is like that's how, that's really hilarious, but it's so underplayed that that joke doesn't play throughout the whole movie. Which that's probably the best joke there is. Is that no, this is just somebody who wants to talk about something he likes because he can't do it anywhere else. Yeah, I feel like if there was a scene where like. Jonah Hill actually confronted both his parents, and it's just like, I just like Exhibit, man. Nobody here talks about Exhibit. You think I want to talk about Barbara Streisand and shit like she want, like your mom wants to listen to? No, I want to talk about Exhibit. It's like, I hate fucking Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Like, something like that, just to kind of give him, like, more oomph to character. Like Otherwise, he's like, he's it's like a, collecting a paycheck. He's not doing anything in this movie. I, maybe they only had him for a day, because that's all you see him is, like, five minutes total. He's very much into the background. You barely know he's there, except when um, the fiance comes over. Yeah. So it has some interesting parts, but I totally say it's not a good movie. It's a bad. It gets some marketing was bad to showcase it like it was going to be. I guess who's coming to dinner? It's not realistic at all in how people handle those problems in a real relationship. And like I said, it being directed and written by Kenya Barris kind of made me click. Like, yeah. This guy writes stuff that's funny sometimes, but it's stupid, stupid situations where people don't react that way. Like, I enjoy the show Black as a Black AF, but it's because it's ridiculous, and all their problems would be solved if these two in that show if they just fucking talk to each other. And just like in this movie, if Jonah Hill and his girlfriend had a fucking real conversation, just communicated, they wouldn't have never broken up. They would have got married, been happy. And they would have just dealt with their fucking families or stood up to them and fucking educated them like they kind of half measure do and get on with their lives. Yeah. So It's a skip. <laughs> yeah, I definitely skip it. It does. It's not. It's, I thought it would be a lot more like Eddie Murphy comedy in it and there definitely wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Eddie Murphy can do serious roles as well as like his comedic stuff. But, you know, with the Dolomite what? movie he came out with, which was really, really good. <sighs> and then like the other stuff he's doing it's like okay cool coming to america 2 came out dolomite movie came out he's back on another renaissance where he's gonna come back and start making some good like comedy movies again it's like nah this is a complete miss for me it's like yeah like he collected a paycheck just to be in this he didn't have to be like, it could have been played by anybody yeah um does washington could have played his role and it would have been the same fucking boring character i think it could have been done by ice t to be honest yeah ice t probably would have been even better i think ice t probably would have worked a lot better for that role to now that i think about it yeah ice too probably definitely would have been all right so that's the movie skip it it's on netflix if you want to <laughs> check it out but honestly i say go watch guess who's coming to dinner much better sydney portier film that tackles the issues they're talking about a lot more seriously and actually has a good conclusion to it on how things end there um and how a couple should deal with that with those situations um so on some tv uh, the Last of Us episode three premiered last week. Oh. Um, it's been in the news a lot because it was not a departure from the game, but it was unlike the game. It took the story focus off of the main characters and spent an entire episode on a side character that, in the long run of uh, Joel and Ellie's journey across the country, it's just they, like a they, brief they, meeting. It's a brief meeting that they have. Granted, you go on a trip to find a battery with Bill. But, again, it's just a very small little bit in their journey. And it's probably the biggest departure from the game. Yes. Other than the fact that the mushrooms the... don't have spores. <laughs> um, yeah, which is like, huh? 
And that and the show is praised out on episode one for being exactly like the game and sticking to the material. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest departure from it, but it actually still fits very well within the narrative. Yes. Um, the big thing is about it is because it's a good representation of uh, the LGBTQ community, basically of the, of the gay community, because it's a story of love between Bill and his partner that he finds Frank th- Frank during the this pandemic that happens. Uh, Nick Offerman playing Bill, which is perfect for having you're gonna pick somebody to be a survivalist in rural Massachusetts. Uh, Nick Offerman is definitely the guy to play that role. He plays it perfectly. Mm-hmm. The guy who hides in his in his bunker when the military evacuates the town, and basically turns the town into his little fortress, and is loving. It gets his own power, gas, has his house. Gets his kicks from watching zombies <laughs> get killed, killed in his little traps. It's He's so joyful and happy. And then we cut to three years later. It's like, okay, so that must be starting to get boring. And Frank falls into one of his little trap holes. Yeah, and he meets Frank. And like the weird things are, well, we were watching it. All right, here's another survivor. He says there are 10 of us, but now it's only him. He's trying to get to Boston. He reluctantly helps him test and make sure that he's clean so he, he doesn't have the fungus the fungus or the virus at all or anything like that. So he then lets him in the whole time in the corner thinking like, dude, this guy's going to betray. He's going to hit you over the head. He's going to steal your shit. Don't – you find you gave him food. You gave him clean clothes. You let him bathe. Kick him the fuck out. Um, it was a nice surprise to see that no, that led to uh, them that, having a relationship. Yeah, that sweet moment like on the piano – and then you see him like start to bond, and and then when they're in bed together, he's like, uh, Frank said, "Oh, I'm only going to stay, you know, a few days." And yeah, he says, "I'm going to do this, or we're going to stay more. I'm going to stay for at least a couple days." days. And he and said, then, "Like, okay." And then it cuts three years later, and it's like, "Okay, honeymoon base is over. We're into real couple shit. We're going to argue about inviting people over." Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's when like I got to okay, cool. That he's not going to betray him. It's been three years. They've been living together. And Lauren, it's good that he stayed because if he left and told anybody about it, like his, Bill's concerns were, you tell somebody that I gave you food and shelter, they're going to come on get more people here. Yeah. Um, so three years. It's understandable. <laughs> three years later, they're still together. They're living in their town. They're having a couple arguments because Frank wants to fix up a few shops uh, that and may not be necessary for survival, but just yeah. make it nice because it's their home. He wants to paint the house and all that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like aesthetics, you know, it's like, and it's his. And as he says, it's my home too. And that starts to click for Bill like, oh shit, you're right. This is your home. We, I need to start being a little bit more, you know, lenient and be a partner. And it's these little moments are so great. And it just shows like an older couple, you know, with the fighting and then just showing their love and the give and take. And the balance that each shows, Bill being the strong, we got defense, defense, defense. Well, Frank is like, yes, defense, but also we need to bring love into this place as well. And a little bit of culture and some type of fun. Yeah, because even though Bill doesn't say, like, I would think his objection to, like, fixing things up would be like, if it looks nice and new and pristine, somebody's going to come by and they're going to want to rob us. Yeah. But it's like, if it looks abandoned and you have a perimeter fence, people are still going to want to come in and see what's left. So either way, people who come by and find this little quaint little town that he's turned into a fortress of like their own like little dream paradise is going to try People are going to try and raid it no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
when he kind of gives in to Frank and they finally, like, you know, lets him build the boutique up and fix this and paint the house and all that. And then allow uh, Tess to come over. Yeah, he allows, he brings Tess and Joel over and that's where they meet uh, Bill and Frank. Yep. And that's who Joel and Tess are working with when they're smuggling stuff into the quarantine at the beginning of the show. Um, and who's also maintaining the radio station for the different coded songs as far as like, this is bad news, this is good news, or I have supplies to pick up, or I need to drop off or stuff like that, that they listen to to do their runs. So you find out that they were the partners that they were working with. And it's all kind of because this guy Frank showed up, helped Bill open up, uh, and then created this. And then even though Bill's reluctant through a lot of it and kind of goes along with it, he does see the joy, especially when Frank surprises him with, hey, I got strawberry seeds from Joel and Jet from Joel and Jet, uh, Tess. Tess, and look, now we can have fucking strawberries, and how great is that? Um, it's like, yeah, I sold one of your little guns. You know, it's <laughs> he fine. Was, he was, he was sold one of your guns. Which guns? Like, it's a little one. Don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> I mean, granted, Bill has a shit ton of guns, but Bill's like, oh, you sold a gun? That's like a precious thing. But it's like, yeah, but so is strawberries. Yeah, having something like, that you go years without because you just can't have it anymore because of the world that you live in, is their things are just no longer going to be available. Yeah. But Joel does, when they first meet, Joel does tell him like, hey, let's have this partnership because we can help each other. And even though Bill puts up the front of like, no, I don't need your help. I'm pretty secure as it is. He points out the weaknesses in his fencing. Yep. It says, hey, raiders are going to come. They will show up eventually. And you're going to have to deal with it. And we actually do see that raiders do attack them. Mm -hmm. They don't get through. But like, honestly, I thought, oh, crap, Bill's dead. Yeah, because and then Bill, he got Bill got shot, shot in the gut. Yeah, but then you see Frank like take him to the table and then start working on him. So you're like, oh, maybe Frank in his past life was a nurse or something like that, and was just like helping Bill patch up. And he's just let. And what was super nice was that he let Bill ramble on like, because Bill's thinking like, I'm going to die. Here's what you need to do. And just telling him a whole list. And Frank's like, yep, keep talking. That's all right. I will do that. As he's working on Bill to be like, you're, you're going to pull everybody, but I'm going to let you talk this out. Yeah, at that point, I actually thought that Bill had died because before they go, they get there, and before this, this backstory starts, Joel says, yeah, well, when we get to Frank's. Because he didn't say necessarily Bill's, he said Frank's. Because Frank was the one who let them in, so he would associate the place as if this is Frank's place. Yeah, and well, and also so Frank's Bill. the one that mostly does communicating, too. Yeah, so when he said that, I was like, oh, shit, Bill's died, and it's just Frank working yeah, with them. Yeah, but then we cut ten years later, ten years, and then, we see someone in a wheelchair. And then we pull in, and we're like, oh, shit, that's Frank in the wheelchair. And then you see Bill, you know, a much older Bill, just kind of hobble out and start yeah. wheeling him around. And you see their uh, new daily lives of them much older it's been 20 years at this point and frank has what we guess is can't some type of cancer yeah, he's getting... or a degenerative or a degenerative um disease like yeah and like they're MS giving they're giving him pills for so like so joel, joel. Uh, joel and tess are delivering meds for them that he's taking uh as they're living their lives together but like it gets to the point where frank finally is like hey i've had enough this is my last day <laughs> Um, because he has to get helped into bed, he can't walk anymore, that type of stuff. And so, the last day, he tells Bill, like, Hey, this is what you're gonna do on my last day. You're gonna go to the boutique, you're gonna wear what I tell you to wear. We're going to get married, we're gonna have dinner, and then you're gonna put all these pills in my wine. I'm gonna drink it, and I'm gonna fall asleep and die in your arms. 
Um, and Bill complies with all that. Um, right up even to the end where he puts the pills in the wine, gives it to him, he drinks it, and then Frank kind of says, there's pills in the bottle too, right? And he's like, yep, the wine we've both been drinking has enough to kill a horse. So yep. like they both, he says, so we're both going out together. And he has this elegant little speech about how like, this isn't the sad suicide at the end of the play. We're both going together. And then they yep. go to the bedroom and they die. And the cool thing is like, we never see their bodies after that. Like, Which just... is great. And I love that. The only time we see the interior is at the very end where they just show frame of the uh, open, window. open window inside the bedroom, which is an homage to the game. When you boot it up, you have that open window, yeah. which is and so sweet. I'm like, oh, <laughs> crying through all this. So when Joe and Ellie show up, they're both dead. And there's a letter left for him by from Bill saying mm-hmm. what he can, what to do, um, where to find all his guns and all the supplies he needs. If he needs anything, he can have it. But also telling... Joel, hey, take care of Tess. That the one thing you can do here in, in this world today is save the, save at least one person. And Bill, who was a prepper his entire life and was only concerned about saving himself, realized he he saved one person's life. That's all he cared about was that he saved the one person's life that he cared the most about. And that was good enough. And why this is going to be so important, and we're not going to spoil the ending for anybody who has not played the game, but this will be the most important episode of this entire show mm-hmm. come to the end because this is a solid- the motivation. This is the solidifying moment that makes the decision that happens at the end happen. Yep. Where in the game, it's very. There's other reasons why it could happen, and they'll build that up in the show as well. Um, but this letter, this letter, and what's said there. Point nails home why it happens. Where why Joel does what he does. Where I think that was more so in the game, gamers w- wouldn't been so divisive about the ending of the first one. Like everybody likes the ending of the first one. It's just it was a it's a very strange moment in gaming. We'll talk about it when we get to the end of the show and that happens. Um, or if you play the game, you know what we're already talking about how that's a divisive weird thing happening in a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this helps it because in the game when you you meet Bill. I got as far as like going, having to go through like all the traps that he set to get to Bill, but I didn't get to like actually go into his story. But there's a point in the game where Joel's like, yeah, they're in the house with Bill. And Joel says, yeah, who's that hanging there? There's a dead body hanging uh, from like a stairwell. And all Bill says, yeah, that's my partner. And you kind of think like, oh, that's his part, his business partner he's working with. Not that it was uh, his, his lover. Yep. Um, and it's not that the game does a disservice. It's just how, it just depends on how you take it. Um, they they leave it take, very open, and you could take it game. either way. I just didn't take it that way when I first saw that scene, because um, I don't think Joel takes it that way either at, at, in the moment, because they're just mm-hmm. having a conversation, um, and then they go about their business or whatever. Um, but that has so much more impact because of this episode now, and what happens will have more impact because of this episode, which is very a very smart move on their part to make this the defining point in Joel's life, because when you look at Everything Joel goes through and what decisions he comes to make. You're and like, what happens to him. Yeah, it's like, it's, okay. It makes so much more sense because of this letter now. Yeah. So, really, really good. I'm excited to see what they do so tonight beautiful. on episode four, uh, where they go with it. Um, my biggest concern for this show is if they try and do the second game. Because the second game is very much not the same story or anywhere near. Or same real... Fi- it's a revenge uh, yeah. story. And 
uh, well, it's hard to do a lot. Well, because well, here's the thing: is like, like The Walking Dead. Why that show got boring after a while, and why The Last of Us Two is not interesting is because it's no longer about trying to survive a zombie apocalypse or trying to stop a zombie apocalypse that's occurring or has happened or reversing it. It's just about living with horrible people in an apocalyptic world, which we all know people are horrible and they'll do horrible shit and you can't trust anybody. Yep. So it's very boring. Last, the thing that keeps Last of Us interesting is that the underlying plot belong under everything that happens in the rest of this show is that they're on a journey to go somewhere to try and try and procure a cure. Yep. Because Ellie's immune and the Fireflies have a laboratory somewhere that may allow them to extract a cure from her, her blood or tissue. So that's the driving plot. And that's what, like, the first season of The Walking Dead is interesting because, hey, we're going to go to the CDC. Maybe they have a cure for this. Maybe there's a way for us to reverse it. World War Z's interest, movie is interesting because they're trying to find a cure to reverse it. Is When you get to a point in an apocalyptic movie where it's like, we just accept our fate and we're just going to live in this world and not do anything to change it. Yep. And then, then it's then, just a story about people. We already know people are shitty. Yeah, and then it just becomes like, oh, a story of the week or a person of, or bad person of the week or bad person of the season that we have to yeah. overcome and kill. And it's just kind of... So hopefully, with Last of Us, they just do the first game, end it there, and don't do anything else with it. And what I would hope they would do, and what I hope what people are trying to say, because there's a Fallout show coming out from that Amazon's doing, hopefully they do a really good job with that. Take notes. <laughs> if they do, um, hopefully what we're going to be seeing is as there was a renaissance of comic book movies being made, that yeah, there's a few shaky ones uh, that got made, like the Fantastic Four wasn't that great, mm-hmm. and like some of the original Punisher films weren't that great, but like the Spider-Man films were really good at the t- at the time that they came out, the Tobey Maguire ones, but they also aren't great compared to the MCU, right? Then we got the MCU, started w- with Iron Man, and then we got a whole renaissance of comic book movies that were really, really good, and now we have you know, a whole franchise of comic book movies that they're making that eventually the, the genre is going to die stale. out. <laughs> Hopefully the next renaissance will be, let's finally take video games and make them into the TV shows and movies we've always wanted to see. I'd love to see them make a Mass Effect TV show that they could run for seasons uh, on, on just telling the main story of Mass Effect 1 through 3. Uh, make uh, I don't know about 1 through 3. Maybe the first contact war would be good. Yeah, but be, or they could like do something, side stories. Either they but... do it, either they follow the, the story of the game, or they do a story within the universe that makes sense. Yeah. But I'd rather have them, if I had a choice of them following the game or making their own story, I would trust them just follow the game first. Because we saw what they did with Halo when they decided to try to make their own story out of lore. And they completely fucked it up and ignored everything. Well, and we made, could go into a whole and made a complete garbage TV show. about that. Yeah. So if you're going to make a good video game, I think what they're learning from The Last of Us is stick true to the original content, make uh, adaptations and additions where it makes sense, but stick true to the, the plot and the story. So yeah. if you're going to make a Mass Effect TV show, stick true to the plot of 1, 2, and 3. You can make an easily three seasons show and go through each storyline there. Um, and it makes sense that season two would have a huge cliffhanger for the third season, which is where you go into Mass Effect 3. So it would work out perfectly to do that. Or they could do, like I said, the first Contact War. They could do a Vicarian 12 show just about Archangel and his squad of people on Omega. But you need to set up that universe. So at least do yeah. Mass Effect 1 and go from there. Agreed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Last of Us, great show. Watch it. Uh, Please give it a... Keep giving it praise. Yeah. Halo show, don't watch that. Halo's yeah, terrible. Just... 
Um, don't but bring it up anymore. <laughs> definitely play Hi-Fi Rush. Excellent mm-hmm. game. 10 out of 10. Could it be game of the year? People were saying. I was, Usually when people say game of the year for games that come out in January, I'm always kind of like, eh, by, by the end of the year, we've already forgotten about it. But with all the delays that have happened and games being pushed back, um, I'm oh, pretty sure Starfield is not going to come out until the fall. It's yeah. not definitely not coming out in June, probably for sure. If it does, it's going to be buggy and broken, and they're probably going to get backlash on it and have to uh, spend the summer like, fixing it. Yeah, just don't do another Halo Infinite. Like, Which, oh, here it is. They're, yeah, they're, it's like, just it's polish not, it out. Polish, yeah. polish, polish. That game's going to be delayed till the end of the year. If they don't come out with it this year, then the hype for it's going to be completely gone if they try to launch it in 2024. Yep. Um, but there's no real... Th- nothing coming out now because the big games at the beginning of the year are gone. Hi-Fi Rush can probably withstand the the length of time and still be a contender for game of the year. Um, Just because as much as like Elden Ring won game of the year last year and it's being praised for its great game design and all that, there is the issue that it is not approachable by everybody. There's a difficulty skill to it. And if you can't, play and you can't figure it yep. out you can't go over that hump you're not you're gonna not, like it you're not gonna be able to play the game this game is one that it's easy to play fun to play but very hard to master and that's the perfect combination for a game of the year because everybody can jump into it and play it mm-hmm. um so that's our show this week play hi-fi rush skip you people be, continue watching the last of us we'll talk about that probably every week uh as we make podcast episodes uh, talk about each episode as we go um Next week, we'll probably be talking about our first impressions on the Hogwarts Legacy because we'll be picking that up later in the week. Um, and go, we'll go over all the controversies and the bullshit that the internet has oh, about God. that game. But um, it for a game that's not necessarily a movie tie-in, but it is a game based off of a movie universe, it actually looks pretty decent versus any other movie tie-in game. Even Shadow of Mordor... Um, uh, I would say Shadow of Mordor is... is Probably where this falls in, where it's a very good game. Uh, War of uh, War of Mordor is a little bit too much. Yeah, the sequel. <laughs> sequel was a little, uh, but the first Shadow Mordor game th- was a story off of the Lord of the Rings universe that works very well by itself and was done very well. I feel like Hogwarts Legacy is a game based off of the Hogwarts universe, but completely own story, to nothing do. to do with anybody. <laughs> There'll be little references, such as one of the professors is a Weasley, but there's no re- there's no meeting any characters. Yep. Um, and should I it looks like it will do pretty well. So we'll have our first impressions on that next week, uh, as well as Last of Us, and then we'll probably pick another movie or something that we may come across or watch uh, to talk about as well. So thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with uh, our next episode, and we will see you then. Have a great day. Bye.